To support the podcast, please follow the link in the show notes and follow our Instagram at Los Angeles Mysteries. All eyes will turn to Mars tonight. That bright celestial body will be swinging closer to Earth than at any time in the last 15 years. Small field glasses hardly will show the so-called canals or ice caps of the planet, nor will they, or the bigger ones, reveal the dwellings of H.G. Wells's militant Martians. There is much to do among the astrologers just now. Some of them see in the nearness of Mars dire portents of war. Mars is a militant planet. A man born under that pink planet is sure to be of a pugnacious disposition. Anybody have any questions to ask? Yes. You know that artists often portray Venus in warm colors, as she is of a passionate nature. Now, suppose that the ancients had given the name of Venus to Mars, as they might appropriately have done. Would that have made any difference in this matter of militancy? I don't talk to scoffers. You are a scoffer. Mars is in the ascendant, and this means war. This morning, the U.S. was awakened by the voice of the Prime Minister of England, Mr. Chamberlain. December 7th. 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Disney to train army. The Disney studio looks like an army post with soldiers manning nearby anti-aircraft and searchlight batteries quartered there. Marching song popular in California camp is Hi-Ho, Hi-Ho, we're off to Tokyo. Greetings, Earthlings. Out in the Mojave Desert, I stumbled upon a strange device, half buried in the sand. It's a smooth metallic bean about the size of a football, with nothing on it but two small dials used to tune to different stations. It's kind of like an old ham radio. But the weirdest part is, it can pick up stories from the past. We're using it to investigate LA's outer space craze in the mid-20th century. In February of 1942, an unidentified object above Los Angeles was pummeled with over a thousand anti-aircraft rounds. And to this day, no one knows what it was. Had anything at all been in the air that night? Stay tuned for Terror in the Air. February 23rd, 1942. My fellow Americans, Washington's birthday is a most appropriate occasion. On George Washington's birthday, President Roosevelt delivers a fireside chat on the progress of the war. While by dark of night, a Japanese submarine bombards Barnstall oil fields off Elwood Beach on the Santa Barbara shoreline. Over a span of 30 minutes, torpedoes are projected toward the coastal city, narrowly missing a large oil refinery and lethal outcome. The news of the world is February 20th. At 7.58 p.m., the 4th Interceptor Command orders the shutdown of all Southern California radio stations. Authorities sever electricity from San Luis Obispo to Ventura and corresponding cities are placed on yellow alert. 
eyewitnesses who spot the vessel Reese emerge note it appeared to head south toward Los Angeles. But burning gasoline drums are the only damage reported. Though killing none and costing the U.S. only $500, the strike on Elwood, the first mainland assault and first attack since Pearl Harbor two months prior, severely escalates the anxieties of the American people and military. The very next evening in Los Angeles, tensions run high as the West Coast Guard patrols up and down the Southern California border. At 7 p.m., the Coastal Brigade headquarters receives reports of pulsing lights and possible signal flares near several defense production plants. The Office of Naval Intelligence informs the militants to prepare for an assault before sunrise. And at 7.18, LA's first yellow alert is enacted. But after three hours of silence, the alert is reverted down to white. At that time, radar is brand new technology and a complete game changer. British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin had spoken on aerial vulnerability six years before the war had begun. It is well for the man in the street to realize that there is no power on earth that can protect him from being bombed. Whatever people may tell him, the bomber will always get through. So by the time Churchill and Roosevelt ruled the scene, radar promised to be a means of protection from German and Japanese aircraft, though the systems had hardly ever been field tested. In fact, Pearl Harbor was, at that time, U.S. radar's only major outing. The misidentification of enemy Japanese bombers as friendlies by the amateur operators is one reason the U.S. had been caught so off guard. It's in this shadow that the Los Angeles forces attend their posts, eyes glued to their sights, their screens, the skies. One forty-four a.m. The Los Angeles Coast Guard spots an odd, unidentifiable aircraft near restricted Santa Monica airspace. Civil Defense Service spots a blinking blip on their radar, corroborated by two higher resolution systems. The command check with air traffic control about unscheduled commercial flights? None. The object lingers for a minute before vanishing off the radar. Around 2 a.m., the blip crops back up, this time heading for the city. On the Information Center's operation board, an unidentified target 120 miles west of Los Angeles, well tracked by radar. Meanwhile, a steady flow of calls comes in regarding a blimp-like object hovering overhead. Anti-aircraft batteries are given tactical defense authority. Air Force bombers stay grounded, opting to gather intel on the scope and orientation of the assumed battle before deploying their modest fleet. On the monitors, the target closes in to just three miles off the LA coast, and a countywide blackout is enacted at 2.21 a.m. At Roy Riley's drugstore near Temple and Broadway, downtown, two waitresses are changing into their uniforms when gunshots blare through the storefront, snuffing an illuminated hot lunch sign and a clock. A mile and a half down Broadway, 
Officers slowly creeping by in a squad car discover a man using an ash can to smash a jewelry store window. There was a nightlight burning in the window during the blackout period. <laughs> Over on the west side, at her home on Rodeo Drive, Warner Brothers actress and younger sister of Olivia de Havilland, Joan Fontaine, hears a patrolling air raid warden shout for her to extinguish her lights. Leaning out of her second-story window, she replies, they are out, but the patrolman insists they're not. At that moment, Joan hears an intruder in her home. The warden rushes in to help, but the burglar is gone. Nothing is taken. In Hollywood, a radio announcer runs into an awning and receives a severe gash above his eye. A lieutenant badly cuts his right leg kicking in the window of a lighted storefront. An air raid warden spies a lit house and hops a three-foot fence, spraining his ankle before making it to the residence. Another, perched atop a wall, precariously leans over to peer into a lighted Pasadena apartment. He breaks his leg. A third breaks his arm walking down his own front steps. Despite the darkness, searchlights dance through the night sky, hunting enemy craft and drawing potential fire away from the production plants and civilians. Sheriff's deputies guard civic centers with newly issued heavy machine guns. Soldiers ready themselves and await further orders. The stars above appear slightly brighter. The urban streets mute themselves and fear courses through the city. In 46 minutes, the skies will be illuminated by thousands of shells and projectiles. Military and civilian witnesses will report enemy aircraft in the skies over Los Angeles. By sunrise, six people will be dead. And to this day, no one knows why. General rules to follow in air raids. One, stay off the street. On the street, there is a risk of falling steel fragments, racing cars, and fire apparatus. Two, do not try to telephone. The wires must be kept clear for the wardens, police, and the fire department. Three, stay indoors. Stay at home. Go to your refuge room. Stay away from windows. In the early morning hours of February the 25th, 1942, Los Angeles hides in darkness, awaiting what is believed to be incoming Japanese Imperial bombers picked up by several radar and eyewitnesses within just three miles of the city. A teletype arrives at the Altadena Sheriff's Station. Prepare for incoming enemy aircraft. Fire sirens sound the blackout alert, and all hands spring into action around the city. Bargain blackout window shades sold in many newspapers, along with knit coverings hand done by local school children, cardboard cutouts, and the occasional black-painted window hide the city lights from enemies in the sky. 10,000 air raid wardens patrol the silent Los Angeles streets, searching for the faintest sign of rebellion or glow of light. Back at the command centers, operators notice the unknown objects suddenly vanish from the radar screens. The men stare in silent disbelief, 
Still, calls flood defense posts, mentioning sightings of enemy planes. The blips remain absent from the radar, but continued contradicting reports of ominous aircraft leering above the city causes confusion among the ranks. One coastal artillery colonel reports, about 25 planes at 12,000 feet. A gun officer describes unknown aircraft in between Seal Beach and Long Beach. And then, suddenly, radar ops track what seems to be a new fleet 100 miles from LA and directly above the Pacific. A green alert, status number one is enacted. Fire at will. At 3.06 a.m., the Santa Monica Guard spot a bizarre object hovering in their airspace, a bright silvery mass of mysterious size and altitude, menacing the gunners below. The artillery brigade's searchlights are no longer searching, but sit fixed upon a single point in the sky, apparently trained on an intruding craft. Open fire! Open fire! A domino effect ripples from the west as anti-aircraft rounds erupt as far east as Pasadena and down to the South Bay. At the Korean temple near Fort MacArthur, a gunman gazes at the sky when his executive officer orders the gunner to his post atop the hill. Once in position, the gunner's lieutenant colonel immediately barks a command. Fire! At what, sir? Fire! Angelinos are compelled from their homes, defying the blackout ordinance. Many hold clubs, pitchforks, or firearms. Some of the armed citizens passionately but meagerly shoot into the air. Most just stand, gazing up into the chaos. Maybe it's just a test? Test hell! You don't throw that much material into the air unless you're fixing on knocking something down. Volunteers dole out gas masks and wardens hustle those caught out in the open to state-sanctioned air raid shelters. A gun team fires 482 rounds at an object in the sky, and 482 rounds come pouring back to Earth, having hit nothing. One team reports striking a plane and setting it ablaze, and bystanders also see planes falling from the sky. It went down in this crazy corkscrew roll, like a, like you, just like you see in the movies. At the municipal airport, employees witness only shell fragments raining down. Tiny pieces of shrapnel pepper 5,000 workers standing in the darkness of the California Shipbuilding Corporation. A 32-year-old man gawking at the pseudo-pyrotechnic display above Long Beach Street is also showered by the red-hot flack of anti-aircraft rounds. Ah! Southwest of Exposition Park, Blanche Sedgwick and her 14-year-old niece are awoken by the bombardment. They crawl out of their bed and exit the room. A live shell lands in their yard, sending shrapnel through the house, pulverizing telephone wires, fracturing cars, walls, and windows, and completely gutting the mattress where the two girls laid just moments before. Luckily, all of the occupants of the home are miraculously unharmed, but not everyone in the city is so fortunate. As a result of the chaos, a police officer is killed in a car crash. 
an air raid warden and a state guardsman each die of heart failure. Civilians fare no better in the darkness. A visiting South Dakota woman dies in her sleep, presumably from a heart attack. A pedestrian accidentally walks into a moving car downtown, while a man taking his wife to work drives head-on into a milk truck, killing her instantly. Each car's headlights had been snuffed in respect of the blackout. Most horrifically, the night's madness provides the perfect cover for a drunk to flee a Skid Row boarding room. He just beat his roommate to death, a 40-year-old blonde woman named Marie. No one hears the crime among the eruptions or notices the bloody man rushing off into the darkness while their noses point up at the strangeness in the skies. Down in Lakewood, 25 to 30 heavy bombers are spotted over the Douglas Aircraft Company plant. And just a few miles away, 15 planes witnessed over Artesia are shot at repeatedly with no apparent effect. The planes head south toward the ocean, where another mysterious object, hovering above Long Beach, is also seemingly indifferent to artillery. It, too, continues out to sea, unscathed. Back at Lakewood's Douglas Aircraft Company, another 15 to 30 planes reportedly loom over the plant, too high for anti-aircraft guns to engage. Minutes later, a call comes into command, claiming Douglas Aircraft has been bombed, but remarkably sustained no damage. More details come in of crash debris at Western and 43rd near USC. It's unclear what exactly the remnants are. Then, just after six in the morning, the 77th Street Police Station receives a call regarding a downed enemy fleet and wreckage in South LA. Several planes shot down at 180th and Vermont Streets. Officers rush to the site and secure a perimeter. As the dawn rolls in, so too does morning commuter traffic. Eight officers attempt to direct the congestion caused by the looky-loos on South Vermont, hoping to get a glimpse of the downed aircraft. Regulations for the air raid are still in force, even during the daytime, until the all-clear is sounded. The officers insist there's nothing to see and move the people along. At 6.35 a.m., Hollywood, many of whose commercial lights are on timers, snaps on, shining bright as a star. A gun commander warns friendly planes are scheduled to fill the airspace. Searchlights are soon completely drowned out by daylight, and by 7.20, the blackout is officially lifted. Next time on Alien L.A. Had anything at all been in the air that night? Was it an enemy plane? Or was it something else? 
please visit our Instagram, at Los Angeles Mysteries, and check out our other podcast, LA 1909, The Griffith Park Murder Mystery. I'm John E. Marino.